Welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Kira, a fourth year medical student at the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a third year medical student at the University of Cambridge. On this podcast, we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world, talking to organisations, including the King's Fund and the GMC, and sharing our experiences as mentors and mock interviewers. No contacts in the medical field? No problem, because in our specialty spotlight series, we are giving you guys a front row seat to interviews with doctors working in all of the different medical specialties. We find out what their day job is really like, their top tips for aspiring and current medical students, and what they would tell their younger self. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelled DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So without further ado, let's jump straight into today's specialty spotlight. So welcome back to our podcast and today we are joined by Dr Kieran Rahim who is you might know her from Instagram at the Munching Medic but in her in her I say real life it's still real life on Instagram but on a day-to-day basis um, she works as a pediatrician and without further ado would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about what kind of a day-to-day life entails for you? Yeah, sure. So hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Kieran. I am indeed a paediatrician. Um, I am also lucky enough to be mum to two boys, which gives me a huge amount of perspective, which I can then, in, uh, you know, deploy into my everyday life um, as a doctor. Um, you know, because obviously sometimes the advice we give isn't practical uh, in real life parenting. So it's been a huge learning curve on both accounts. So I qualified from Barts in the London in 2011. It makes me sound so old because some of you will have been born in the 2000s that are listening to this <laughs> now we're in med school. And then I did my foundation years in, um, I chose to do a year out in a DGH and that was in Chelmsford. Um, and then I did my F2 in Homerton. And I've always wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, I think I got really into it in in medical school. Um, And the reason for that was, is because it's quite a generic specialty. So um, you you learn a bit about everything. So there's all, you know, if if you're like me and you couldn't decide which organ is your favorite, there's a bit of neurology, there's a bit of cardiology, there's a bit of nephrology urology um there's also you know eating disorders and um adolescent sexual health if you're interested in stuff like that and you can also Mm. do community stuff so then i uh, applied for pediatric training uh, got in and the rest is history so i'm an st6 um i've had my children throughout my training and an average day. Um, so I think the one thing I will say is if you're, if you're thinking about being a pediatrician is that we are quite out of hours heavy. And what that means is that out of all of the specialties, we probably have a high rate of on-call. So usually most rotors in the UK are one in two or one in three weekends. You tend to do a lot of evenings, nights and weekends, but it is a really, really fantastic specialty to work in. I have I think in this past year, um, and having been redeployed to adults, I have never been more grateful that I'm a pediatrician um, than in, honestly in this past year. And that has really reaffirmed my choice of career. It's a really, really fun specialty. So most people are generally very nice. Um, mm. There's no real hierarchy, um, if I'm completely honest. The registrars get stuck in just as much as our SHOs and F1s and F2s. And so do the consultants. It's not unusual to see a consultant down in A&E doing a cannula um, with us and coming down to all of the recess calls. 
Your day varies. So you're either covering A&E. So we cover A&E pediatrics. So anyone that's referred via GP or referred via the A&E team um, or anyone usually depends on hospitals, usually under the age of six months, come straight to Pete. Um, so if you're covering A&E, you clot, you triage, you admit, you transfer or you send them home. If you're on the ward, it's very much like all other specialties. You do a ward round. Ours is a bit more fun, though, because there's not very many other specialties where people are walking around naked. So our, our kids are often in their nappies running around. Um, and that's quite fun. It's quite a fun ward round. And then you do your jobs and you usually go home if you're on a short day. If you're on a long day, you'll carry on. And after five o'clock, cover the wards and cover any sort of issues that come up with the children that are there. Uh, PEDS is very different in that it's very top heavy. So um, what that means is that you're never left alone as a junior. And I certainly wouldn't expect my SHOs to be making decisions without running them by me. And I, even as a registrar, won't make certain decisions without running them by the consultant that's on call. Uh, we have three handovers in a day. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so morning, uh, afternoon and evening. And people think that's because we're really, really paranoid. But actually, Pete's has one of the highest rates of turnovers. So you can admit an entire ward in a day. When you come in, the ward that you have at nine o'clock is not going to be the same as the ward you have at four o'clock because you could have sent everyone home by 12 and A&E will have filled them up again. And then when you're on nights, is usually one of you. So you cover the ward and you cover A&E, which is uh, interesting. So you cover all the recess calls and any emergencies that come up. So that's if you're in hospital. If you're in community peds, you do your clinics as well. And you do some clinics in hospital as well. You do the general pediatric clinics. And then you've got some other specialist clinics that you can do, like your UTI clinic, your asthma clinic, allergy clinics. So it all depends really where your interest lies. So you can really, um, you can also subspecialize in peds. So instead of being a general pediatrician, you can do something called grid training and you can do that in uh, neonatology. You can do that in nephrology, neurology. You can do that in community pediatrics, uh, CAM, so child and adolescent mental health. So it's a really, really great and varied career for anyone that likes a little bit of, I guess, spice and different things in life. And children always keep you on your feet always and they keep you young (laughs) my teenagers have have taught me very very many important social skills like dabbing I learned that a few years ago and the floss one of them taught me a few years ago so it keeps you young yeah um one of the things that I feel like is commonly said for pediatrics is that people never think they'd be able to do it oh is it I was I thought it was I thought you were gonna say oh it's the parents that are a nightmare (laughs) I thought that's what you another one of my questions (laughs) No, go on. Sorry, what was the what was the no, thing that you said? It was just um, when I talk to people, and I I'll, well, there's two things. I'll tell people that I want to do pediatrics, and either they go, "Oh, feet, that wouldn't really do do it for me," and I think, "Well, that's the other one, pediatry, not pediatrics." Oh. <laughs> they get confused. <laughs> and then the second thing they say, "Oh, no, I couldn't work with children because it's it would be too emotional." Now, what would you say to people that think it's overly emotional working in pediatrics? I think that's a really, really common misconception. Uh, People, I think, when they think of pediatrics, think of us breaking bad news and dealing with dying kids all the time. Actually, like I said, we have one of the highest turnovers in any specialty. And, And what that tells you is how incredibly resilient children are. And I think people forget that. And people forget how how much we've got our premature babies surviving and children that come in into A&E and they can be on the 
verge of death and we fix them and we send them home. And, and that is very, very true. They also have less co comorbidities. Um, they, they tend to be on hardly any medication. And so more often than not, we're not actually having those difficult conversations. We're getting them in, we're sorting them out and we're sending them home. Or if we're not sending them home, we're following them up in outpatients. Whereas I think, you know, an average stay in a pediatric ward, I think, is something like nine hours or 10 hours. Um, compare yeah. that to an average adult stay. I don't even know what it is anymore. It was like four days in my in my time. It may be even longer now. So I, I don't think I don't think that's an accurate perception. I do agree that when it is tough, it is really tough. Um, but I think that's in any specialty and mm -hmm. You know, even with things like cancers, which I think is what everyone thinks about when they think about peds, um, children have one of the highest rates of recovery and remission. Um, so, you know, if you think, look at childhood leukemias, we do really well in them. They've got like a 10 year survival rate of 95%, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there are there are tough times, you know, when a child dies, it is really horrible. And I don't think any amount of preparation is going to get you there. But at the same time, I don't think any amount of preparation gets you anywhere when an adult dies as well, um, whether that's an old adult or a young. My first job as an F1 was vascular surgery. And I, you know, I remember people in their what 30s, 40s, 50s having AAAs and dropping mm -hmm. on the floor. And I don't think it made it any easier whether they were a child or an adult. But I think the difference is... And I think the adult doctors will really not like me for saying this. I think we're very well supported in pediatrics. We are a really, really nice specialty. And you guys will have learned that in medical school. You don't come across very mean mm -hmm. pediatricians. No. And all pediatricians seem to keep their personality per se, whereas in some other specialties, the personality is suppressed or beaten out of them throughout their training. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, I would honestly put that down to the children because they come out with right one-liners um, <laughs> or they say stuff that you just think because children are so honest you know they have absolutely zero filter um, and so it's really hard to then put on a persona because <laughs> you change your personality for every child um, you know not all children are allowed some people like games some people like singing um, and we do it all we blow bubbles we sing for them we dance for them we dance with them so yeah you you have to be fun for peds I think mm, definitely amazing I, I was just going to come back to what you mentioned earlier do you think it is sort of double the work with having to look after both the parent and the child um, I think it's a really important skill set actually and people see it as double the work but I want you to picture your most prized possession. So, Lucy, what's your most prized possession? Probably my, my nieces. I've got two little nieces. Okay. So I meet your nieces and I hurt them. How's that going to make you feel? Very, very frustrated, angry. All of those emotions. Yeah. All those emotions. Now, imagine if those nieces were your children. Mm. That emotion's heightened, isn't it? Mm. And I think once you understand that for most parents, their children are their most prized possessions. And it comes from a place of fear, fear of losing them. Mm -hmm. It comes from a place of anxiety that they don't know what's going on really. And it also comes from a place of lack of knowledge, right? Because what do you do when your child's got a fever of 42 and you've tried paracetamol and you've tried ibuprofen and they're still wailing and they can't communicate 
and you don't just don't know what's wrong. And I think once you understand that, it really changes the dynamic of the whole situation. Parents don't get upset because they're upset at you. They are just coming from a place of fear and anxiety. And once you understand that dynamic, it makes things so much easier. In my 10-year career so far, I have yet to be shouted at by a parent. Because when you walk in, you acknowledge that fear. You say, I know you're really scared, but that's why I'm here. And I know you've got a thousand questions. I will get to them. Just let me do what I need to. And I promise you, we will take the time. And once you say that, most people are fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I've done PEDS as an F2. And I distinctly, and I talk about this a lot on my Instagram page, actually, how much it's changed me as a doctor, because we've all been there, right? Like you've, you're doing your on calls, even as a med student, and you think about these patients that walk in at 2am in the morning, and you're like, why, why would you choose 2am to walk in? Like, it's, it's so annoying. And then I, I distinctly remember this in, um, as an F2 and I was super annoyed like I was on nights and in walk this family that had had a fever for ages and I was like you have had four days to come in and you choose 3am in the morning and fast forward a few years and I've just had my first baby and I'm now a pediatrician right so I'm now a pediatrician mm -hmm. I've done F2 peds I've done a year of clinical peds and my child's got a fever he's got a fever of 42 he's had it for about five days and I know and I know as a pediatrician now is the time for me to go in and I don't know what's wrong with him. And despite my training, despite being a medical doctor, the amount of fear, the amount of anxiety, the mm. amount of shit what's going on with my child doesn't go away just because I'm a doctor. In fact, it's a double-edged sword because for me, it was like, is it leukemia? Is it X? Is it Y? And so it's given me perspective with parents. And I think whether you have kids or not, to understand that most parents are just so terrified that there is something seriously wrong mm. And children don't belong in hospital. So for them to come to hospital, it's a really, really big deal. So once you reassure them, most of them are fine. And mm. it's not hard work. It's actually a really, it's really, really humbling. And it's really, really rewarding guiding someone through that process as parents. Um, and most people leave with lots of prayers and praise for you. And that's a really nice feeling that you've helped someone in in one of their darkest times yeah I guess you're not only treating the patient but you're also treating the whole family because if a child's sick in the family nothing else really matters and everything else can yeah. grind to a halt so yeah yeah I can definitely see that and you mentioned it's about a double-edged sword and one of the things that I'm I'm not sure about in terms of pediatrics is if I was to go into pediatrics and then have children of my own would I actually not be able to cope and be like the most miserable mother ever being like, <laughs> do not do that. I've seen a, you know, cause even now seeing patients mm. come in with certain things, it does change how I act and behave. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it difficult? It is difficult sometimes, but also I think other times you, you also know what the breadth of normality is. So that's also really reassuring, right? Mm -hmm. So you know each child comes with their own personality, with their own when they walk and talk and clap and do things. So there is also the other side of that. And, you know, I've had two children in my training and I don't think being a pediatrician has made me a neurotic mum. I think actually I'm the opposite. I'm a bit more chilled out. So when I know, like when I walk into a &E with my kids, I know that I probably left it too late because I'm like, no, they're fine. And my husband, who's a non-medic, is is the rational. He he balances me out because he's like, no, I'm worried about my children. 
Um, and also my mum, like, you know, my mum will take my kids to the GP uh, without my knowledge. <laughs> if she is worried about something, despite me being a pediatrician, will be like, no, I need to get a doctor's opinion. So there you go. <laughs> That's very reassuring. That's quite funny. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh. I was just wondering, do you have any different communication styles when you're talking to like the child that can't communicate with you? How, how do you sort of do that? Uh, so that's your clinical acumen and you build that over time. So obviously with babies, uh, they don't communicate at all, but mm-hmm. you learn to recognize certain cues, the way they look, their cries are different. And it's really funny when I tell this to people, they're like, all oh, babies sound the same, but actually, no, they don't all sound the same. There's something called a high pitched cry. There's something um, that has like you can tell if they've got something in their throat kind of cry. Um they can look mottled and pale. So we we look at children and that's one of the joys of peds actually is that it's such a guessing game sometimes, right? Like you get a bit of history from the parent, you get zero history from the child unless they're verbal, um, but you have clues that you go by and that's what you build in your training. And which is why it's it's so hard, so different to other specialties where usually the patients will tell you, you know, I've had cough for five days and then I bring up sputum for six days and it's green and X, Y, and Z. In peds, it's really not. You have to, you get very good at getting the information you need. So it's a mix of stuff. And the ones that can communicate, oh, they'll tell you everything. If sometimes too much and you just, then it really messes up what you're thinking. Mm. And I guess they can also communicate or they're more likely to communicate pain than like maybe a six-year-old woman who, it's, it's absolutely really yeah. patient when you miss your cat, her cannula three times, but I'm guessing you don't have that luxury in, um, in children. How do you find the procedures side of things? And I know obviously yeah. in teenagers, they're not on, on a smaller scale, but generally smaller scale, everything. Yeah, no, everything is on a small, smaller scale. Um, people often get very um, amused at how, actually they get really scared at what we do. Um, and it's really interesting. So peeps is very procedural based. So it's not unusual in a week for me to do lots of cannulas, lots of LPs, maybe a long line. Um, if I'm on the neonatal unit, that will be multiple long lines and multiple intubations and multiple. So our skill set is actually quite huge um, because in our training, we cover PICU, we cover NICU, which is neonatal intensive care, general peds wards. And then you may also cover specialties. So, for example, if you're doing nephrology or urology, you will also pick up specialist skills because it's not like they have adult equivalents um, mm-hmm. for pediatrics. Often you do pick up really good skill sets. Um, and it is hard, but it comes with practice. And, you know, a cannula in a, in a pediatric unit requires about four people. Uh, so it requires the cannuli, so the person doing it. It requires a holder. It requires a distractor. And sometimes if you've got an extra pair of hands, that's always really great because these kids have tiny veins. We generally tend not to stab them several times. Um, and the more relaxed you can get a child, the easier your job is. So, yeah, there are lots of things we do. And LPs as well. It takes about three people, one to hold a baby, uh, one to catch, one to LP. So it, it's a team effort. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many people are working on a pediatric ward? Because I, I did uh, work experience for when I wanted to become a doctor. And I thought, oh, this is something I'd be interested in. One of my first work experience placements was in pediatrics. And I was amazed about how many people were, were just part of the, the hostel experience of these children. Would you be able to touch on who, yeah. who else you might see? Um, so you have your consultants and you have your ward team, your A&E team of doctors. 
you also have your A&E team of nurses, so pediatric nurses, and then you have your ward team of nurses. You then usually have specialist nurses. So it depends on what your hospital has. You might have an asthma specialist. Actually, most hospitals will have a respiratory specialist nurse because that is a lot of what we see. So things like asthma, bronchiolitis, flu, viral induced wheeze. You will probably have an epilepsy specialist nurse. Um, you will also have a dietitian so often our kids we have an in-house dietitian on most pediatric wards you will have a play therapist or two um, so these are people that will distract children while procedures are going on or getting them ready for things like long lines and cannulas and LPs you will also often have a school um, a teacher so someone comes around and gives the children that should be at school work and gives them things to do so they're not bored then you have your healthcare assistants. So they are the people that will help with the nursing staff. Um, if you have a child with mental health issues, you might have a registered mental health nurse or an RMN that stays with them all the time. And you also have parents. So um, it's a very, very busy ward. So parents can visit at any time. So there's no visiting hours on children wards for parents. They stay the night, usually one parent, and they come and go as they please during the day. Siblings and other relatives can usually visit, I think it depends on each hospital, but usually in the afternoon sometime. Um, but it, it is a very busy ward, always a very busy ward. Mm, gosh, really busy. Yeah, but it's fun. <laughs> I think I, I much prefer days at plays at when I'm so busy because time goes so slowly yes. when there's, there's nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, on peds, if there's nothing to do, you play with the kids. And if you're on NICU, and uh, there's hardly ever nothing to do on NICU and in peds, actually, you get to feed the babies, you get to play with them. And if you're on NICU, you also get things like the speech and language therapist. And um, I also forgot the physiotherapists. There's a lot of therapy that we mm. do for children because the earlier you get mm. in, the better the outcomes. Definitely. I think I'm on psychiatry at the moment and it's actually really surprised me how much could have maybe been prevented if we got stuff right in their childhood and how a lot of things patients are suffering with now. You take a history and it stems back to something that happened when they were five, twelve. Mm -hmm. um, and it really broke my heart. And I think just build in the importance of supporting children um, and how actually sometimes the children that come for support or the children that need support aren't the ones that come for it and um, so we'd really yeah. love to talk a bit about kind of the safeguarding aspect and that kind of the aces of childhood and maybe talk a bit about what aces are yeah so what you've touched upon is social pediatrics and it's how childhood influences health outcomes so we have some data that shows adverse um, childhood events so aces uh, predict outcomes um, for children as adults so we know children that have aces and they usually are things like domestic violence drug abuse poor attachment to parents poor education um, there are nine aces and I never remember them all um, but you can look them up so if you've got three or four more aces these children do much more poorer in in adult life and they are more likely to be in prison they're more likely to um, get involved in substance abuse uh, with alcoholism they're more likely to have teenage pregnancies drop out of school uh, the list goes on but actually there's also very real health outcomes so they are more likely to have mental health issues they are more likely to have things like cancer diabetes blood pressure so actually we now know and we've known this for about a decade or two that your childhood does absolutely shape your personality and it also shapes how you 
develop as an adult, which is why we are so hot and heavy on getting intervention early. Because if you can prevent these things, you can prevent an entire generation of uh, poor social functioning adults. And like you said, you know, especially in things like mental health, you can predict these things. You can predict children that have poor attachment to their primary carers are going to likely to have attachment issues later on in life and relationship issues and poor self-esteem. So a lot of what we do is prevention. And unfortunately, um, child health hasn't really been on the agenda politically. It never really has been. Britain has one of the poorest poverty rates in the developed world for children, and it's increasing every year. We have the least amount of funding in things like maternal mental health, in maternal breastfeeding support, in maternal um, everything really, and also parental. So, you know, families don't have access to basic things like a house over their head or food on their table, or they're reliant on food banks. And we know this affects children's health. One in three children go hungry to school every day. Um, so, Yes, paediatrics is the career if you really want to make a change um, because the damage hasn't happened yet. Mm. So if you can get intervention early and you can lobby for it, then yeah, absolutely. You can make a huge change to the lives of these children. Yeah, I think it, I was speaking to my mom. My mom is, she works at a school and she's in the admin. And, and when, when lockdown first happened, she was saying, you know, how all the teachers were so worried and not because they weren't, the children were going to miss out on school, but actually because school was a safe place for so many children. And that was where they were able to pick up on problems. And actually home is not always a safe place for children. You know, mentioned hospitals aren't great either, but it's like, where, where can children go? Uh, if- yeah, yeah. And that, and this is the issue. This is where safeguarding comes in because, mm-hmm. you know, you have to safeguard children. And, and that means against abuse, that means against neglect, that means against violence. Um, and it is difficult because we know children also do poorly in social care. Um, and that if they are in either fostering or adoption, if they're looked after children, um, they also have poor outcomes. So it's about supporting families right from the very beginning and identifying things like domestic abuse and pregnancy and providing you know, mothers with mental health support and identifying things like you know, perinatal psychosis and perinatal depression and all of these things. And you're right, you know, when we went into the lockdown last year as pediatricians, we were like, where are our safeguarding cases? Where are the children that we should be seeing that we know are getting abused? But again, it comes down to a failure in system. Social care is hugely underfunded. It's hugely, um, you know, difficult. And it's, it's, it's got such a high burnout rate that people don't last very long in that career because of what they witness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not easy. You know, it's, nobody likes safeguarding. It's a really, really difficult job. But someone needs to do it. Yeah. And the child can't safeguard themselves so no they absolutely can't and you know the teachers were very right to be worried um mm. but there you go it's, it's not it's not a pleasant part of peds and i just wanted to touch on something earlier i think you mentioned that it's got one of the highest out of hours um rates in pediatrics and how how conducive is that with a family life i mean i know you've got two children yourself I mean, um, you know, lots of specialties have high um, out of hours, but it's about managing your time. And I think the older you get, A, you get good at saying no, which we're not very good at as doctors. We definitely feel like we have this obligation to always say yes all the time. And I think that need to say yes diminishes the older you get and you get priorities um, in life that are not work. 
And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but you know, when you're a medical student and you're an F1, you're F2, your career is everything, right? Like I didn't have children. So I was like, yeah, I'll do an extra shift. Yeah, I'll stay another three hours. It doesn't mind. Like nobody, you know, it doesn't matter. And then you, you know, if you decide to have a family, your priorities change. Um, I'm very, I'm very particular. I get my rota. We usually get our rota about three months in advance of when we start jobs. And I look at all the weekends I'm working and I make sure there is childcare available for my children. If there isn't, I swap out of those shifts. I look at my weekends off. I look at my evenings off and I plan my social life. So texts will go out to all of my friends and family, you know, if there are any important events like weddings and stuff, I make sure I'm, I'm there. And, and usually because we're so nice, most people mm-hmm. will swap. Um, I'm, I've not really had an issue with not being able to attend stuff. Most people are really, really kind about it. I usually work Christmas. Um, so Christmas is never an issue in, in the job that I'm at because I'm happy to work for someone that isn't celebrating. And it's a compromise and you get good at it with your colleagues the more you get to know them. And these are people you're at work with 14, 15, 16 hours a day for a six month period, sometimes longer. So you do form bonds and friendships. Mm, definitely. And I guess, are there any tips and advice that you would give to some medical students listening, Lucy and I maybe, who are thinking about paediatrics? Yeah. Apart from um, I think don't get too bogged down on about doing stuff in, in medical school. I know the pressure's really high, guys. Medical school is the only time in your life you'll get to enjoy your summers and your Easter holidays and your weekends and not have to do nights. So remember that Mm. your medical school life is such a small proportion of the rest of your careers and the rest of your lives. And I know the end goal seems like it's always to consultancy or to be a GP. But I promise you, the minute you start training, that end goal does not look that great. Okay, so I would much rather be a trainee a little bit longer because you've got the rest of your life to be a consultant. If you want to build your CV, you can do things like QI projects. Um, You can do uh, audits. I would try and do a student selected module in a pediatric uh, placement. Get in touch when you do your pediatric placement. Stay in touch with your teams because there's always things going on. We do so many audits. There's always national audits. There's always something going on in um, peds wards. So yeah, get involved in them. And then do your taster weeks in pediatrics. And if you can do a foundation job, I would very, very much advise it. And I would say this to whatever specialty you're considering doing, because being a medical student and being a doctor are two very, very different things. Mm-hmm. And they're not the same. You may love pediatrics as a medical student, but actually when it comes to the job, you may hate it. So you do need to get involved in something. And there are a few societies you can join. Um, that website is, um, it's called UK APS. So it's the United Kingdom Aspiring Pediatrician Society. So do join on. Uh, they've got lots of things that they can help you with. For example, um like fy doctor experiences they've got some medical education opportunities they've also got things like um academic opportunities so do join on and it's a really great thing to show on your application as well amazing i guess it's kind of brought the episode to a close on that note but i think we do have a couple of reflective questions for you just about your experience as a pediatrician so far and i was just wondering what do you think the biggest lesson you've learned in your career so far is Oh, that's a difficult question. The biggest lesson I've learned. I think the biggest lesson I've learned is actually uh, perfectionism is not all it's cracked out to be. And um, 
I know like when you're a student, you'll go into and when you apply for jobs and they'll ask you as they do, what's your weakness? And I can guarantee it about 90% of you will say, oh, it's because I'm a perfectionist. And we say that with a lot of pride, right? We say because perfectionism is associated with success, it's associated with being detail-orientated, with being driven. And actually, it's something that I probably prided myself on. But in the last, I would say, two years, I'm realizing how crippling perfectionism can be because it's associated with a very fixed mindset, this need Mm -hmm. to always be the best and, and not accepting anything less. And and that can be quite that can be quite a burden to carry. And if you look at research, if you look at uh, psychology research and papers, perfectionism is associated with a huge rate of anxiety, huge rates of depression, huge rates of burnout, which are all very, very rife in medicine. So if that's the one thing I can say or I can pass on is let go of your perfectionism. Yeah. If you're doing your best, then that's all you can do really, isn't it? That's what I say. Absolutely. And then finally, I guess, where do you see the future of paediatrics heading or what are your dreams for the specialty? Um, I think, you know, um, the next 10, 15 years, we are really focusing on prevention and those social paediatric cues. I think there's going to be a massive investment in paediatric mental health, in making children the centre of their decision making process, you know. The college is excellent. So the RCPCH is really, really excellent in getting the voice of the child. Um, And what children have said is that talk to us, not our parents. Um, So that's where our focus is. Mental health is a huge focus. And also uh, realizing how hard it is for them to transition into adult medicine, because we are very hands-on and adult medicine isn't really as hands-on. But I think lots of social pediatric stuff is going to be coming up and hopefully more things are going to be moving into the community and into primary services rather than being hospital centric because kids don't like being there and children don't like being in hospitals so we're trying not to get them there prevention is always better than cure isn't it Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah well thank you so so much for joining us on this episode oh my absolute pleasure We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more, be sure to check out all of our previous episodes, reading from our highly popular open pods, UCAP, BMAT, and into your advice, and even more. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at how to become a doctor with doctor spelt DR for more. And be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. See you next time. Bye.